Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. There it is. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. I am your host, Brian Urban. And today we have a very special guest. John Gorman is going to help walk us through how you achieve a mission-based ROI. An incredible background. He was serving for the HCFA before it turned into CMS. A board member of several businesses, started the first SDOH venture capitalist group in the U.S. with amazing success and has gone on to actually lead his own podcast, The Health Equity Now, uh, producing 17 episodes with a renowned guest list. And you know what, John, you got to get season two on the books because I was actually just listening to more episodes last year, uh, this this past week. So uh, without further ado, John Gorman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be here. So, John, with every episode we do on our show, we usually open things up with a Q&A or a fun icebreaker. Uh, but for you, because you have such a deep background, I don't want to waste any time with that. I want to get to know you before you became the John Gorman, really, and, <laughs> and help our audience know who you are as well. So uh, growing up, uh, having a renowned physician as a mother, who changed policy. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. And, and then your experience through government and private and venture capitalists, you've, you've done so much. I really want to kind of walk through the journey of who you are, where you came from, and then we can get really into the mission-based ROI stuff. Oh, sure, sure. Well, um, I was born and raised in Detroit to uh, two parents who met at Wayne State Medical School uh, in Detroit during the... Um, the height of the Detroit riots. Um, my mom was running the ER at what was then uh, Detroit Receiving Hospital. And, um, uh, you know, she couldn't get home for four days because the snipers were shooting over the uh, the, uh, the highways. So um, grew up in turmoil and, uh, you know, the only white kid in about a five mile radius in uh, downtown Detroit, uh, which was awesome um, and a very rich experience for me as a kid. Mom was probably my my greatest influence. She um, she trained in emergency medicine, transitioned to primary care, and became a legend in uh, primary care and uh, family medicine. And you know, my mom was uh, she was an, an incredible humanitarian. She was you know on the first wave of medical personnel into Chernobyl. Uh, she was in the refugee camps in Macedonia during the Bosnia War. She was in Sean Penn's camps down in Haiti after the earthquake. She was on the first wave into Fukushima after the, the meltdown there. And, and her idea of retirement was to serve as uh, for six years uh, running the biggest AIDS orphanage in South Africa. So she was probably my greatest influence. Uh, second would probably be Stevie Wonder. And third would be Prince. <laughs> <laughs> what a crew to be an influence on your life in the space. And thank you uh, for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, if, if you haven't started your own uh, uh, personal biography, 
then uh, you should, and you should dedicate obviously the first probably 10 chapters of that to your mother. Uh, sure so my just, mom. Yeah. She was really an exceptional woman. So I, um, I came to DC 32 years ago to work for my hometown Congressman, John Conyers Jr. Uh, who's uh, passed now, uh, but left an incredible legacy. And, um, you know, within a year, I was his chief of staff. A uh, year after that, in 92, I was helping to run Bill Clinton's campaign in Michigan. And uh, when we won, uh, my plum was that I got appointed to uh, HICFA to help start the first office of managed care, which was going to manage all of the Medicare risk programs, as well as all the Medicaid managed care programs at when they were just really beginning to grow in the early 90s. And um, uh, was there for three years, uh, really helped get the office on a very solid footing. It's now the Center for Beneficiary Choices in CMS. Um, and, you know, when I was when I was running the office back then, Brian, it was like three percent of Medicare was enrolled in these private health plans. It was like this little novelty program over here on the side. Now we're approaching 50 percent enrollment in Medicare Advantage, as it's called today. And uh, man, I told myself I wouldn't cry, but it's so <laughs> nice to see my babies all grown up. And you got to be proud of that. And we'll talk more about the growth of Medicare Advantage really uh, since about 2014, 2015, 8 to 10% year over year. That's yeah. unbelievable. I mean, you yeah. don't see many businesses maybe outside of Amazon growing like that rate. And to go back to the influence of your start in the space uh, with your mother, it shows not only did you get into SDOH with your venture capitalist group, Nightingale, yeah. Yeah. but you got into it not just to turn a, a one-off profit. You helped create sustainable business models that was a blend of actually helping other humans, uh, you know, duh, and then actually having healthcare, unnecessary healthcare spend, reduced year over year. So you've proven yeah. out the model. And I think for a lot of the health insurance organizations uh, big to small, Blue Cross, private, and even healthcare and now social tech. Uh, I think a lot of people see SDOH as an altruistic, purely uh, philanthropic mission, and, and that's yeah. it. And and it's flat, and that's not the case. Uh, and I think that's one of the tragedies in terms of how this has been deployed in the market. But I, I wanted to understand how you first saw this as an opportunity to do both, to help people make a really strong business case that could be multiplied. Sure. Well, um, when I came out of the government, I started a consulting company called Gorman Health Group. Um, and for the 23 years I ran it, uh, it was the biggest consulting and technology shop in government health programs. And when I sold it, um, and I took a year off to just kind of take it easy because I'd, I'd done about 3 million miles during those 23 years. And and it was nice to just spend a year with my family. Um, I, I really had always been fascinated with social determinants of health. And let me just say from the outset, Brian, I freaking hate that phrase. It's just it's just four fancy words for poverty and racism, like with what I grew up in, with in Detroit. And um, I wanted to find a way to help uh make a business imperative out of investments in alleviating poverty and racism in healthcare, because 
what wasn't lost on me was that 60 to 80% of what we spend on healthcare in this country is attributable to poverty. And, you know, I like to say that in healthcare, poverty charges interest. And so in Medicare in, in particular, if you've lived in poverty your entire life, you're going to be at the higher end of that 60 to 80% spending spectrum. So seniors, especially low-income or duly eligible seniors who also qualify for Medicaid, those are the most expensive and vulnerable and neglected populations in the health system. And if we could find a way of sustainably financing interventions to alleviate poverty, we were going to get outsized returns um, in terms of savings uh, down the road. So let me give you an example. The, the one project that made me want to be an SDOH investor, if you will, was um, during the, the year I was goofing off after I sold Gorman Health Group, uh, Geisinger uh, called up and they uh, realized they had been spending almost a quarter million dollars per patient per year on their uncontrolled elderly diabetics. I mean, that's just a staggering number, right? And when we looked at a bunch of the data and factors for what could be driving that, it, it was evident that, you know, this was central Pennsylvania. Most of what these folks were eating was junk out of, uh, you know, uh, out of a Wawa or something that you find in, in uh, rural Pennsylvania. And it was exacerbating these conditions hugely. So we said, let's start a pilot program for a thousand members, and we're going to do a medically appropriate meal delivery program for them. And 14 months later, we had that average cost for those thousand members down to $48,000 per member per year. So net of the cost of this meal preparation and delivery uh, we were saving $192,000 per member per year. And that's a 35X return on investment. And man, you will not see a margin like that anywhere else than dealing with poverty in healthcare. And I said, that's it. I mean, all we have to do is find a way of monetizing these savings. And we've now got a sustainable model for uh, financing anti-poverty benefits and services. And that was what propelled me to launch Nightingale. Amazing experience to kick off your deep investment in the space, not only financially, but the sweat equity that you've put into this, the brain equity as well. And that's just one population you mentioned. Uh, right. Really die back. Like you can, you can have that across different populations and being a creative problem solver I think is often a challenge for a, a health plan that might not have a care side. Like Geisinger has sure. both of those sides. So I love that example. And going back to the terminology SDOH. Yeah, it was, it was definitely coming from an academic uh, white guy, uh, white gal in, you know, a high up institution, yeah. social drivers, real human health. There's, there's so many better terms that I now are, are kind of popping up. You know, for me, SDOH is always like, you know, it's like how we call cow meat beef or pig meat pork. It's like it's just designed to make it more palatable to white people that are uncomfortable with the notions of poverty and racism. It's a few degrees backed up from the core yeah. issue that yeah. it's supposed to be hitting at. You're, you're exactly. absolutely right. So and, let's call it and, what it is and deal with it. 
And in terms of actually marketing, I want to get into kind of this uh, to, to kind of really get down into how health plans and, and healthcare really need to invest in this space. So anyone that utters the word health equity or SUH at a conference better back it up and better have more than just marketing. They got to have a team. They yeah. have to have analytics. They have to have an actual objective set that they can hit. So in terms of what the government has started to do, going back to 2020 now, they've changed the uh, customer experience measure, the CAPS survey. They yeah. have more of a weighted impact on STARS. Medicare STAR ratings are very different with health plans than they are with, with health care, obviously. So yeah. now they've gone from like about 20% weight on a STAR rating to about 60%. Yeah. So now health plans are being held truly more accountable for grabbing incentive dollars that are quality bonus payments that are paid out if you hit these measures, if you stay within yep. the five-star rating. So it's quite it's quite interesting. About 68% of health plans in the U.S. are at that uh, high-star rating, four and five. But those that are stuck in the four and lower, uh, I guess, what would we say to them, your words here, how do you turn around? You can't just screen people and then try and put soft interventions in place. What are the top investment areas health plans need to do to have better star ratings to not get stuck in, and gobble up more quality bonus payments? It's a new line right. of revenue for them. Less member right. attrition essentially comes from this, too, if you're a better experience for your members. So what are the things that a health plan, if they're stuck in that four or lower star rating, they got to do or even the fives got to do to keep that going? What would you say? You, you got one. You got to stop being so timid about these types of investments. Um, you know, I, I can really judge the seriousness of a plan's efforts around this by the number of commas in the budget. You know, if they're throwing two and a half million to a food bank, that's a PR stunt. That's just marketing. If they're throwing 25 million into an integrated food insecurity initiative, that's going to entail, you know, a regular healthy food option for all of its members a medically appropriate option for those with say diabetes or kidney disease, and then fresh fruit and produce for everybody, which requires a whole separate supply chain and, and a delivery approach, um, then that's a serious initiative. And you, know, you wanna remind the plans that these types of benefits and services are the absolute stickiest that you can offer in terms of what breeds member retention and loyalty to keep these members with you year over year. So you actually realize the savings from these investments, right? It doesn't make any sense to, you know, bring a member in, throw $10,000 worth of food, uh, drug benefits and primary care at them, and then watch them walk out the door the next open enrollment period. You know, you want these people to stick around. And, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's just fascinating to me when you look at, the impact of everything from food to non-urgent medical transportation to housing to maybe the deployment of community health workers to help folks navigate the health system and clear rocks from the road for them. Um, there is nothing that, that uh, delivers better retention and member satisfaction on the CAP survey and other measures in star ratings than, than these types of benefits and programs do. So you gotta, you gotta take this seriously you got to stop being quite so timid about it and just sticking our toe in. The, the time's passed for that. 
Um, I think these benefits are going to be the basis of competition in Medicare Advantage for the foreseeable future. I love that note right there. That is how you are going to have the most share of members is investing into this going through the next decade plus. And I think you bring up a really interesting point when you mentioned uh, community-based organizations, uh, community players, those are that are deployed boots on the ground. And you and I talked a little bit about this before, but organizations that have a referral system, basically a network, like yep. a Find Help, like a Healthify, uh, and, and they come I through just, presenting yeah. it on a platform. So a very cool tool, a lot of tech involved, a lot of relationships involved in different neighborhoods. But the one challenge here is for these organizations, how do they jump to the next step? How do they evolve? Because capacity for a Meals on Wheels program in a small neighborhood, there's only so many meals they can make. And then their exactly. supply chain is messed up with how they get yeah. those foods prepared to those that need it. So how are these referral-based platforms going to change? Are they just going to do more maybe need-based algorithms or are they going to do a different I, relationships I, with providers now? How's it going to change for them? I am a little skeptical of these uh, companies that emerged to do this through technology as uh, a very capable referral platform, because very often they're going to end up sending these patients into the ether because the capacity to serve them just doesn't exist. A lot of area agencies on aging are not even capable and many are just not even interested in serving a bigger population. Uh, Meals on Wheels, you know, in, in a lot of... Uh, suburban or rural communities. It's a half a dozen lovely church ladies in a basement somewhere making meals to deliver the next day. They're going to need a lot of nurturing and help to grow much bigger than that. So I knew Nightingale wanted to, we, we wanted to focus on building capacity to deliver these services in these, these underserved and neglected communities. And so there is an element of partnering and nurturing community-based organizations that are already on the ground and helping them do bigger and better. And um, the second is building additional capacity where it's needed. You know, if those nice church ladies, six, half dozen church ladies in a basement are producing a hundred meals for delivery the next day, we need them to, you know, prepare and deliver 10,000 meals a day. We're going to have to build them a commercial kitchen we're going to have to maybe get them a fleet of vehicles to do the deliveries. And we're going to have to get a whole lot more people involved uh, in preparing those meals in order for it to be effective. So, you know, the handholding and the nurturing of community-based organizations is essential in this kind of work. Because, you know, one thing we have to think about as investors is a lot of those community-based partners have come up either, you know, on the goodness of their own hearts or in philanthropy, most of them have never submitted a bill or an invoice, much less to an insurance company for a service. And they don't have the first idea what value-based care means, and especially what it means to the services they may provide. So there really is a very big hand-holding component. And this stuff is always hyper, hyper local, like down to the, the individual, the house, the neighborhood, the block. I mean, this stuff has to be targeted and nurtured on the ground. So that's really where a lot of our focus is uh, these days as well. A very fragile ecosystem yeah. that 
being pushed to its thresholds. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's great in theory. It's good in application, but now what's the next step to evolve? So I I love your take on that. And I, I, I definitely have more questions on that, but I want to actually go back to policy stuff. So we talked about the customer experience measurement side being a higher weight now. So in 2023, there's an additional measure being handed down through NCQA as a HIDAS specific measure on social needs screening and interventions. I think it's the yeah. SNSE uh, measure that it goes against. So they haven't rolled out to what I've seen yet, the specific measures and how they'll require documentation of this. But it seems like it seems like a soft step in the right direction. There's no disincentives. There's no uh, right. firm incentives that have come out. So, John, do you think you know your work with Clinton, Obama, and even more recently with this administration, is was this a strategic step to get the ball rolling more? Or is this just a, a soft step and there could have been more of an aggressive policy put in place? What's your take on it? Well, I think what that measure in particular recognizes, Brian, is that a lot of the plans need data first before they know what the problem areas are and where those people live. Um, It is not lost on me that over 80% of Medicare Advantage plans don't have the first idea of the race or ethnicity of their members. I mean, I don't, you can't design these things and, and intervene successfully in a culturally competent way uh, unless you know who is intimately the patient population that you're trying to address. So NCQA is there recognizing that first we need data and it sets up an incentive for them to go out and screen folks for social determinants uh, to better collect race and ethnicity data and to provide it in a framework that uh, is actionable in the years to come. And we're going to see a lot more of that um, in the future. I mean, this administration has made health equity an absolute priority in everything that they're doing. And there's actually some big grant programs and and other investments rolling out right now to help uh, insurers and others collect this information so that we can be more effective in fielding interventions. You can't know your enrolled population enough when you're trying to do this stuff. Like I said, this is hyper, hyper local, deeply personal stuff. And um, and you need data to really be able to direct your efforts so that the money is spent in the most cost-effective way. That point right there. I think a lot of people think that you can zoom forward. And I, I'm a big proponent of let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. But we got to take a step back and say, well, how well do we know our population as a health planner, our population as a country or subsets and communities, neighborhoods, households? And, and then you can really have more of a precision focus for who you're helping and how they need help and validate. Exactly. So that's that's a really good perspective. And and I think, obviously, you know this, it's really tough to get policies through. Uh, you've seen it through yeah. many administrations. And uh, I'm curious with, with the current administration, the hunger program, there was a conference back in September in DC, yeah. uh, President Biden announced this new hunger program initiative to really yeah. deter hunger, kind of a feed. I'm very in, involved in it too. Yeah. And, and I got to know, from your experience, uh, how has this program been received in DC and how, 
yeah, how likely is the success of it? Is it stage success you're looking for, or do you think it's going to be a, a big wave of success that's going to be really reoccurring? Well, I mean, the president and and all of us surrogates involved in this effort uh, managed to raise eight and a half billion dollars for this initiative, which is serious, serious money. Um, and you've got a lot of um, players in the space contributing pretty heavily to it. I mean, uh, Kaiser alone threw 50 million into this thing. Uh, Kroger threw in a quarter billion uh, into this. And um, there's a lot of actors that uh, are very engaged. And um, I hope that that will uh, drive this program to success of eliminating hunger in the United States by 2030. That is a a very, very ambitious goal because, you know, you're trying to do it across the country in neighborhoods that are both, you know, inner city and neglected to rural communities that have been forgotten. And, um, you know, to really uh, get this with enough reach into all types of communities, because one in five Americans are hungry right now. Um, that's going to require a, a Herculean effort at the community level to see this through. And I think the president and the staffers working on this recognize that, that again, this is hyper-local stuff and we're gonna really have to have a, uh, a national, regional and local distribution capability here to, to, to realize this program's success. Probably one of the biggest programs in terms of investment that I, I guess you could probably say you've seen since maybe the AIDS program going back into the, the 80s and 90s, uh, there's probably a few really big ones in between. But in terms of what our biggest challenges in terms of uh, disparities by race, this one by far takes it. Hunger is, yeah, is epidemic in this country. It's like the epidemic on, underneath the pandemic. Um, you know, when one in five Americans reports, which means the number is probably actually a lot higher. But when people report that they are food insecure, that's one in five people in this country. And that's just that's just horrible in the richest country on earth, you know, and with producing the most food waste and the most right. healthcare spend as well, yeah. by far, even at the per capita. It's, it's astounding yeah. compared to other countries. I agree. Pacific, Asian. Pacific. So. John, you mentioned something really interesting. So food access. So the surveys that have been proposed and will be held accountable to health plans, uh, they focus on food transportation and housing. Those are really tough things to yeah. figure out. You talked yeah. last year to Ray Prushnak, executive director of the Center yeah. for Social Impact. I, I talked to him recently as well, and they have proven out a very strong model for having economic stability and the cycle that they have for employing people that they help. So it's a very, uh, a very rich model. And I loved your conversation. So that type of model works out really well for an integrated delivery network. You know, you have Absolutely. the payer and provider working together. Yep. Do you think that can be deployed with a Blue Cross Blue Shield entity that doesn't have a healthcare affiliation? That's purely working off maybe census data and claim data. They just see that clinical profile. They don't have a yeah. social profile. Do you think it can be adopted quickly there in certain pockets? Or does it, it really take an IDN to start making change like UPMC has? 
I mean, you can certainly jump into this and, and, you know, try a carpet bombing approach and we're just going to feed everybody because we don't really know who's really in need. I mean, again, the point is of all the analytics on the front end that you do before these efforts begin is to really understand where the people are who need this help the most and direct the most resources to them. I mean, that's really what we're after here. Um, now, you know, health systems and health plans can get it, as I said, like a carpet bombing approach and just make this available to everybody. And you're going to waste an inordinate amount of money in doing so. Um, you know, the, the ability to have that analytic front end to really hotspot where across our service area folks need the most assistance, and then to be able to bring those resources really just to those communities in greatest need gets you the best bang for the buck, which is what makes these programs sustainable. I mean, you've got to be able to show results. And, you know, generally a food benefit, like any SDOH intervention is routinely going to show a three to eight X return on investment. 35 X at Geisinger was a, an outlier. Um, but those are, those are achievable. I mean, the Commonwealth Fund just put out a study last week with all of the ROI evidence of social determinant uh, interventions in the literature. And they found that a meal benefit, you know, routinely was delivering over 3000 bucks per member per year in savings. So, you know, you really, to do this well, you've got to have an absolute command of the needs of your service area and your enrolled population. And you want to have the ability to target these types of benefits and services to the folks who need it the most. And that's where you're going to get, you know, the best uh, return on investment. And that's what makes these types of investments sustainable. Food is one in particular, Brian, where once you begin to offer this benefit, you can't go back, man. You can't stop offering it, say, two or three years from now. Um, so generally, once you start a food benefit, like other social determinants uh, interventions, you have to really be able to sustain it financially, because the last thing you want to do in an era where, you know, the member satisfaction numbers are 57 percent of your star rating is to offer a life saving benefit like food security and then not offer it again next year. You're in this longevity. And so you got to be able to do this well and uh, targeted uh, to make sure it's effective. And, and that's the best, I say, theme across our conversation so far is once you're investing in, it's not a one off. It is a reoccurring business model that you need to grow and be adaptive to the different populations that you'll see coming into your health plans, whether it's in the MA space or commercial IFP, whatever. Uh, you, you bring up a really interesting point in terms of you deploy a program, but you got to keep people engaged. And Nightingale, yeah. uh, your, your SUH venture capitalist group, invested a lot into broadband access, uh, yes. you know, breaking up the digital divide. And McKinsey had a report back in 2018, about 70% or so dual eligible citizens in the U.S., had access to a smart device, a phone, tablet, right. something like that. So, you know, that that's probably closing a little bit more. And you're having a little bit more of an intuitive population overall with smart technology. But what did you find when you were researching and going through that investment? And then you know, what were some outcomes too? Because 
we forget about that. Like that, that's yeah. still a challenge globally, let alone the U.S., but that's still Absolutely. a challenge. Well, I mean, it's one thing for duels and other neglected populations in our health system to have smartphones. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've got uh, connectivity to the Internet regularly uh, or affordably. And what we found in our first couple of interventions was that upwards of 50% of the people we were trying to reach were not connected to the internet on a regular basis. And that made engagement very difficult. And these types of interventions, you know, hard to be effective uh, if folks aren't connected. I mean, you have to have internet access to even get a a COVID vaccine now. Um, And to have any hope of you know, care management for somebody who's chronically ill or has multiple comorbidities, that goes out the window if they're not connected to the internet. I mean, you you will last see them when they leave the doctor's office and you won't have any idea what's going on with them until they show up back at the doctor's or in an ER, okay? So we knew that broadband internet access was the new super social determinant of health. And if we wanted to really have much higher levels of engagement with the most neglected populations, we needed to provide broadband right out of the gate. Um, And in our first uh, project where we offered broadband, we were trying to intervene on on behalf of about 5,000 members uh, on a diabetes program. We found we were getting two and a half times the rate of engagement uh, with members we provided broadband internet access to than those we didn't. Uh, in a control group. And um, that engagement rate helped drive the uh, success of that intervention. So in that example, we put uh, a half a million bucks into internet access for uh, a couple of big public housing units in the city we were working in. And um, that half a million dollar investment ended up yielding $6 million dollars in uh, savings after the first year. And that, you know, that's obviously an investment you want to continue to make. And then you want to uh, expand it to make it available to more folks. That's an amazing example of reduction, you know, cost avoidance. Like that's your indirect revenue in this this type of business model. And I, I think that sometimes is a, a very uh, intangible thing. And, and it's, it's, it's tough to realize that. And I think a lot of health plans still think that SDOH needs to be a turnkey ROI. Like you invest in like 30, 90, 180 days, you're going to see return. It, it's a journey because you're talking yeah. about the human condition at play here and your involvement with changing behavior. You're giving yeah. access to food, water, transportation. So I, I think in your experience, you know, what is the average kind of return on investment here because otherwise there's a risk of ignoring and you're just going to keep yeah. you, know, you know losing members having high healthcare spend not knowing where they're at transient populations especially right. in medicaid so I, yeah. I guess what do you see in average turnaround time it's a journey for sure well uh the typical different examples that's probably tough <laughs> yeah no, no, no it's not actually i mean the typical sdoh investment as i mentioned earlier is going to yield you consistently a three to eight x return on investment you know certainly in the case that i just gave you uh that that was also the case um usually depending on the intervention this stuff can take a year or longer 
to see results. Diabetes is, you know, is a tough condition because it's really involving changing behavior at a fundamental level uh, and then trying to make healthy resources available to these patients in the hope that they'll actually use them. Um, most care managers know that any sort of chronic disease intervention is going to take you two to three years to start to see consistent results. We found food takes a little less. You know, Geisinger, Geisinger's example was about 14, 15 months before we started to see some big results. Um, but you see similar impacts in uh, things like non-urgent medical transportation. That's a big one because you see almost immediate improvement in people uh, getting to their doctor's appointments and avoiding uh, uh, unnecessary ER admissions. So that's usually one that uh, has some pretty quick results. Um, housing is a profoundly impactful intervention, but the problem with housing is, is the time from capital deployed to service offered. Um, you know, if you're building housing, you know, you're looking at a year or two before you start to see, before you can even house people, you know, because you got to rehab units, you got to get all this stuff ready. Now, if you've got housing that's relatively immediately available, uh, we did a, a project in LA, which was a nightmare because, you know, zoning in LA is just horrific and NIMBY politics is awful. And so it, we knew it was going to take us two or three years to find actual properties we could develop to for uh, a housing insecurity village. Um, so instead, you know, we had to go to um, uh, corporate housing vendors like a Candlewood Suites. Um, and, you know, they were they were completely empty during the pandemic, still are. And, you know, we went to them and said, look, could we take a block of a thousand rooms for a year uh, and we'll, you know, we'll assure you that none of the folks that are going to be in these units are going to have serious mental health issues or uh, substance abuse issues. In this example, it was newly emancipated foster kids who were 18 with no money, no skills and no place to go. And they're, you know, one of the most vulnerable segments out there. And um, Candlewood Suite said they take that deal in a nanosecond. And um, and we got a couple of thousands of those kids housed relatively immediately. And the effects of that were profound and very quick to, to see. So it really kind of depends on the intervention, the population you're trying to intervene with. Um, but generally, you can expect three to eight X ROI and results generally within a year or two. That is very helpful, I think, for the broader audience to understand. You know, there is a sunk cost. You initially invest, but over time, you are going to see returns that are substantial and sustainable as well. So very much inter intervention dependent and uh, population dependent as well. And exactly. You brought up something very interesting earlier. You, you mentioned hot and cold spots. And there was a lot of analysis. It actually became quite popular. Dr. Brenner of the Camden Coalition in New Jersey yeah. uh, back, oh man, 2017, 18, something like that. Sanjay Gupta uh, interviewed him uh, through CNN and walked the streets of Camden, New Jersey with him and helped, uh, I guess, the, the broader U.S. understand what is hot and cold spot analysis. I've been involved in some study outside of, of FinThrive here in regards to that for generational yeah. poverty rel relative to economic 
stability. But in terms of uh, what you've touched with zip code analysis, basically, down yeah. from community individual, how helpful is that for health plans, healthcare to adopt to better understand what is a whole hot and cold spot, a high healthcare spend or generational poverty or low access, low transportation, yeah. that sort of view. Uh, how helpful is that to adopt and start to have that as a routine set of data for healthcare economists, uh, data science teams? I, I mean, over the long term, it's absolutely essential. I mean, you know, one of my dreams has always been to have um, a social determinants database that would sit on top of an electronic medical record, be agnostic to the EMR, but that would would make that data available to the providers in the network uh, just as freely as, uh, you know, anything else in the EMR would so that they can actually see a, a more complete profile of the person that they're serving across the uh, the exam room. And um, I, I think that that kind of data is absolutely essential. A lot of plans will tell you it's really just confirmatory. Like we know where the rough neighborhoods, neglected neighborhoods are in our service area. You know, for instance, I live in D.C., Ward 7 and 8 on the east side of the city are where all the poverty is focused. I mean, D.C. is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And, you know, we know here in D.C., most of our effort has to be on the east side of town. But when you do really serious analytics, you can't just be looking at the stuff that's available from the credit agencies. You can't just be looking at income and age and uh, race and ethnicity. When we are preparing to do one of our interventions, guys, we're looking at 5,000 different sources of publicly available data on the front end analytics. We're not just looking at income and race and ethnicity. We're looking at who... Um, checked into a homeless shelter in the last two years, who checked into a food bank in the last two years, who had a car repossessed or a house foreclosed on. Those are all publicly available data points that are incredibly helpful in really painting a picture of the social needs uh, of a population. So you may know where that neighborhood is, but only by really getting into point analytics can you see house to house block to block where the needs vary um, in, in that population. So you know how to target your resources and um, your interventions to where they're going to be most impactful. I love that you took it to that level, the adverse life events. Someone that maybe recently had a car repossessed, uh, had parents or loved ones pass away, loss of a pet too. There's a lot of different variables to our human behavior and condition that can affect how we maybe stay adherent to medication or have access to a exactly. healthcare visit, things like that. So like that type of social profile on top of clinical is a real person profile. And, and yeah. you mentioned kind of the kind of a longitudinal or a utopian EHR really. Uh, so I think your experience back with, uh, with Geisinger, I think Dr. Feinberg's now at Cerner. So we're going to, we're going to hit Cerner up and see what they think about evolving the space. So we're going to, we're going to see if we can get those folks on the show, but let's uh, just hope Larry Ellison doesn't screw the whole thing up, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole separate talk. Track yeah. That's show, a whole but, other podcast. Um, yeah. But I, I love the example you go back to with Geisinger and the fresh food pharmacies developed like that now yeah. is multiple locations in central yeah. Pennsylvania. It is a staple in communities. 
So yeah. you think about Blue Cross Blue Shield licensees, they're community health plans. They market themselves that yeah. way. And, and they're starting to get deeper in the space. I think Michigan Blue Cross Blue Shield is a good example of things they yeah. do. Highmark Health as well. Uh, now having AHN, Allegheny Health Network as a care yeah. side. They yeah. have a food distribution site. Like they have a full out investment into this space. So yeah. the starting place that you've gone back to several times is knowing your population, having a precise target, and then yeah. building out specific interventions that you can track and actually deploy and, and, and staff the team. So it's a whole cultural shift. So this is, this is an investment into culture, an investment not only into dollars, but into programs that you have to evolve. So an amazing journey you took us through there. So John, I have a one closing question for you. Oh boy, so, okay. Uh, <laughs> we're, talk, we're talking at the, the top level right now. We're talking CFOs, CEOs, SVPs of health equity. Uh, they're building out programs and trying to adjust to policy. And they have so many balls in the air. What would be your advice to focus on going into 2023 to really make an impact? Like where do you tell them to start to simplify it for them? Because they are, they're looking at all the shiny things, platforms, data, right. tech, and where do you start to get them laser focused on how they can impact and reduce healthcare spend? Well, the first thing would be eliminate copays and deductibles. I mean, and that's a shocker to a lot of people, right? But copays and deductibles are the most regressive thing that health plans do. They are literally economic barriers to access. I mean, why the hell would you have a $25 copay on insulin? You know, these are life-saving drugs that, you know, without them spiral into hugely expensive cases and episodes of care. You know, so for first, get rid of copays and deductibles for services and products and drugs that you need your members taking regularly. So insulin, there should be no copayments or deductibles on things like insulin. Um, there, should be, there should be no copays or deductibles. In fact, we should be offering a coupon for these folks to go see their primary care physicians, right? So first start there because that, you know, if you really want to talk about poverty and, you know, eliminating barriers to access, get rid of the economic barriers first, like those. Second, I would say in all of our work, we've seen very consistent patterns show up in the data. The thing that's most needed by any Medicare Advantage or Medicaid population right now is food security. Uh, inflation is way up. Commodity prices are way high. Um, a dollar just doesn't buy you as much and a dollar of SNAP or food stamp money buys you even less. So we have to recognize, especially for seniors on fixed incomes or for desperately poor people on Medicaid, food insecurity is the number one need and where you'll see the greatest results. Secondarily would probably be the deployment of community health workers uh, to the most complex uh, and needy patients, neglected patients in your system, giving them a guide through the health system, somebody to enroll them in programs that they're eligible for and maybe didn't know, like food stamps or uh, housing vouchers or 
low-income heating uh, credits um, is immensely helpful and uh, consistently yields a $3,000 per member per year savings just by having uh, a friendly face uh, helping you through the health system. Um, that I think community health workers are going to be probably the biggest headcount at a lot of health plans and health systems, I think, by the end of this decade than more of us realize. Um, and yeah, as they should be. And by the way, that's also awesome economic development in these neglected communities. You're literally giving folks great entry level jobs right off the street to do what a lot of them are already doing for zero pay right now, just out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, to now deploy them trained as a social worker, basically without the license, uh, to just help people through the system uh, is immensely powerful and extremely effective. Um, third would probably be um, transportation. Because uh, generally speaking, in a lot of areas, public transportation is pretty awful. And being able, being able to help people get to a doctor's appointment or to a pharmacy to pick up their meds, or even to a grocery store if they live in a food desert is really powerful, very impactful, and results in tremendous savings as well. So those are the probably the top three that we see most commonly in the projects that we're doing right now. I love that. So to sum up, it's remove the economic barriers. The co-pays aren't working. I know it's a direct line of monies, but it's causing more harm than it is good uh, straight out. So you got to incentivize. If anything, uh, you got to remove that. So number two, uh, you have to address food and invest in food. The community health workers, really to sum it up, that is probably the best community health street level neighborhood house to house that you could invest into. And that's a growing space for workforce. Oh, and absolutely. A high retention opportunity as well in terms of keeping workforce and growing them organically. So I, I actually love that. So CFOs, CEOs, keep your ears open. John Gorman has plenty more advice to come out. And we got to talk more. I think the next time we catch up on pharmacies becoming primary care spaces yeah. and, uh, and, and the change in clinical trial diversity, we, we have a lot to catch up on in those subjects. But I want to thank you, John, for joining our little show. Uh, I, I look up to you in so many ways and, and oh, thank thanks, you Brian. for being Appreciate able to that. be a leader, a leader and, and a really good bully in this space. You're helping influence push <laughs> people along. Like that's what we need, man. So thank you so much, John. And for more exciting excerpts and uh, information on our show here, please visit finthrive.com.